Amen. Good to see you this morning. Welcome to Grace Point. God bless you. Come on, bless the praise team. They did an awesome job. Hallelujah. Amen. We are excited to have you with us at Grace Point Church this morning. And uh, it's so appropriate today to talk about the resurrection, of course. And uh, it would really be wrong not to. Because it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ as to why we are saved, why we have the liberty and the freedom. Paul said, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is in vain, it's futile, and you are still in your sins. But the good news about that is you're not in your sins if you put your faith in Jesus. Amen? Your geography has changed. Your location has changed. The Bible says we've been placed in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we're what? New creation, new creature in Christ Jesus. If you have your Bible want to read with us this morning, we're going to the book of Exodus chapter 14. I'm going to read just one verse, and then we'll pray and let you be seated. Uh, this background of this is Moses is leading the children of Israel out of bondage. They had been there as a people for 430 years in the bondage of Egypt, and he is leading them out. And they have actually come out of Egypt, and now they are facing the Red Sea. Pharaoh did not give up. He's still coming after them with all of his army. At that time, he's the most powerful military force on the planet. And he's coming after these Hebrew slaves to bring them back into slavery and into bondage. And the people, all they can see is they're boxed in, the Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh behind them, no place to go. And in verse 13, Moses says this to the people, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again, no more forever. Can you say amen to the reading of God's word? What I want you to see is their deliverance typifies our salvation experience. What it says in this verse is that we need to see the salvation of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. He thought of it. It's his design, his plan. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. This is not God's plan B because of what Adam did in the garden. God only has one plan, plan A. Can you say amen? And then it says that the salvation of the Lord that he will accomplish for you today. How many knows that you can't save yourself? None of us can. It's God's plan, God's purpose. And then I'm not one of those preachers that believes that when you become a Christian, that that means that you won't have any trouble. I want to tell you, it won't be shocking to you, but I know that you will have trouble. But I'm happy to announce to you today that there are some enemies that God has so delivered you from so completely that you will never see them again, no more forever. That's what he says, no more forever. And so that's what we want to talk about today. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for resurrection, for it is in the overcoming power that you displayed in the resurrection that death had no hold on you, sin had no claim to you. Father, we thank you that you came forth from the grave. You demonstrated for all the universe to see your victory. 
your plan and your purpose for man. To walk in the newness of life, the resurrected life, the life that is empowered by Jesus Christ. We thank you for that day. We thank you for this day that we celebrate. We remember, we acknowledge, Lord God, your victory over death, hell, and the grave. We do it in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said? Turn around shake somebody's hand. Greet them with a big smile, especially if they're a guest of ours. Tell them we're glad they're at Grace Point this morning. As you do that, you can be seated in the presence of the Lord. The Bible even tells the story of this in 1 Corinthians 10. We won't go there, but it tells us that, that they were, the children of Israel were baptized unto or into Moses as they passed through the sea. Um, that is to say that God typifies their deliverance as they went through the sea and down into the sea as slaves. They were buried in the sea. And then they came out on the other side, not as slaves anymore, but as sons, uh, preparing to enter into the promises of God and receive their inheritance. Now, if you remember the story in Egypt, Pharaoh would not let them go. They were in bondage, and, and there were ten plagues that hit Egypt. And, and in fact, if you study that, each of those plagues were, was literally coming against a false god of Egypt, a deity of Egypt. But the But the... The uh, deliverance of them came by the blood of those lambs, the Passover lamb that they offered. Remember when they applied the blood to their home, to the doorpost and to the lintel. And when they did that, that death that was seeking them passed over. That's where we get the word, passed over them, and they were delivered from that death. But the Red Sea uh, crossing really symbolizes the resurrection. Uh, even though the blood of the lamb, it set them free, but it did not separate them from the Egyptians. Uh, you have to see that they still came after them. And, 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 and what is it that gives us the power to live our lives without those things of our past still coming after us and trying to bring us back into bondage? It's the resurrection. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here at Grace Point, we preach the gospel. Can you say amen to that? In other words, we say a lot of words. I say a lot of words uh, about Jesus. We preach the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus, meaning that we talk about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. But then there are things that we do here when we show or demonstrate our faith in that gospel of Jesus. By that, I mean we've already done one of those things this morning, or several of those things, in fact. Our worship is we're showing forth that our God is worthy of worship and is alive. Can you say amen? Uh, our giving that we just did. The Bible actually says in Hebrews 7 and 8 that when we bring our giving, our tithe and offering to the Lord, it is a witness that he lives. When somebody sees you get up and bring an offering to the Lord, we're not giving to a dead God. It's declaring that he lives. And then in a few moments, we're going to receive communion together. And communion is all about the broken body, the blood uh, of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. And Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. He said, as often as you do this, we do show the Lord's death 
till he comes. So we're, we're not only saying words about Jesus, but we're, we're showing you about Jesus. And so as we partake of the communion in a moment, we will be uh, receiving remembrance, literally, of his death on the cross. And Jesus said, as often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. Many times we've gone to communion services where all we do is remember ourselves. We're not to remember ourselves. We're not to, sometimes you've heard people say, well, Paul told them to, before a man received the communion, that they were to examine themselves. Well, most of the church thinks you're supposed to look inside yourself for sin. How many knows you'll be 100% accurate of doing that every time you look inside yourself? Okay? That's not what he's telling to examine yourself for. Do you understand in the Old Covenant that under the Old Testament that a man bringing an, a lamb for his sin? He's not coming alone. He's, he's coming and he's bringing a lamb, a perfect lamb. And the priest that's going to receive the lamb does not inspect the man. He doesn't examine the man. He doesn't look at the man. He doesn't get his pedigree. He doesn't want to know how many sins did you did last night or last week or last year. All he's focused on is the lamb. And he examines that lamb seven times. Actually, several priests are participating in that. And after he examines the lamb and finds him to be without fault, without blemish, without defect, he declares that this lamb is an acceptable lamb before the Lord. And then when he tells that man this, then that man lays his hand on the lamb that he brought, signifying the transfer of his guilt, his sin, to this innocent animal. How many knows I'm in the Bible? And so the righteousness, the declared no sin, no fault in this innocence, symbolically is transferred to the man. That man turns and goes his way. The lamb is sacrificed. Now, the only problem you have if you come this morning and you don't bring a lamb in other words, you're just standing there. The priest has no option but to examine you because you're saying, I don't need a lamb. What you're really saying is, I don't need Jesus. I'm righteous enough on my own. I'm spotless on my own. How many know that's foolishness? I tell you that we stand in the righteousness of God that's in Christ Jesus. He's our lamb. He's our sacrifice. And so that's what communion is symbolizing. So why does Jesus say, as often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me? What does he want us to remember? Well, he wants you to know how much he loves you. He wants you to know how far he was willing to go to save your life. He wants you to know that, that, uh, that what he was willing to, to suffer to redeem us. Uh, that in itself, that alone should take care of all of our low self-esteem and our fear and our feelings of unworthiness. Uh, you must be of some value because look what God paid for you. Amen? And to ever feel unworthy or worthless or like that you're not worth anything to anybody is literally to say that God's not worth anything because God gave his very life to you. You determine the value of something by what you're willing to pay for it. What was God willing to pay for you, he paid his own life, his own sinless, spotless, precious blood. That's what God did for you. So you should never entertain the lies of the enemy that you're worth nothing, that you're of no value, that you don't have any importance. And then another thing how we show the gospel is in baptism. We do it in water baptism. Uh, we do show forth in that the Lord's uh, death, his burial, and resurrection. Uh, really, water baptism is a funeral. 
if, if you esteem it properly, because you're taken and you're placed under water. How many knows you can't breathe under water? So here we hold you under the water until you can say tithe. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm just seeing if you was listening. We don't do that. But when you are water baptized, we do immerse here. We immerse you in water. We believe that's the biblical pattern. But as you're placed under that watery grave, you have to cease breathing. It is a cessation in, in, in typology of death. You're placed in the watery grave. You hold your breath. You're not breathing. And then as you're uh, uh, died, that's burial, and then you are brought up. Thank God. Amen. That's resurrection. That, that, is, that is the resurrection. And so when you're resurrected, that's what Jesus done for us on resurrection morning. He uh, was baptized himself. We see this in typology when John the Baptist was baptizing at the River Jordan. You remember that? And he looked through the crowd and he saw one coming who was Jesus. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of what? It's so important to get that he took away the sin of the world. Not the sin of Christians, not the sin of people who said, I'm sorry for sinning. He took away of the sin of people that have never even said boo to God. He took away of the sin of the world. And if that wasn't the only place in the Bible that it says it, we might not emphasize it so hard. But then in other places it says that Jesus Christ was the propitiation, that word we don't use in our English language, but it means the appeasing sacrifice. Jesus was the satisfying sacrifice. He was the propitiation, it says, not only for our sins, the Christians, those who accepted him, but he said for the sins of the entire or whole world. How many knows us in the Bible can say amen? amen? See, Jesus paid the price for all. So did he take away the sin of the world? That's what he came to do, and he surely did that. So when John was... As Jesus went down, the Bible says, into the Jordan, he asked John to baptize him. John did not want to baptize Jesus. And Jesus, remember what he said? He said, permit it to be so that all righteousness can be fulfilled. A lot of us don't understand why Jesus did that. What Jesus was doing is he was demonstrating his resurrection that was soon to occur. He was saying, I want my people to see that it is through my death my burial, and my resurrection that I'm going to deliver them from their past. See, you're not going to simply be the old person with a paint job. You're not going to be the old person just trying to do better. That's not what it means to be a Christian. You're going to be a totally new creation in Christ Jesus. You're not the old person still struggling. That's not what God says. God said, if any man is in Christ, he is. A new creation. Well, you go, well, that doesn't make sense because I'm still the same person. I look in the mirror, I see the same person, and I even still have some of my same struggles. But you don't understand where the newness occurred. That's in your spirit. See, you were spiritually dead, Paul called it, in your sins. Your spirit was not alive unto God. It was alive to sin. But then once you got born again and you put your faith in Jesus, what, what happened was your spirit became alive to God, to the things of God. You begin to learn to live out of your spirit. That's what it means to live by the spirit, to, to be led by the spirit. You're living out of the revelation of the new man on the inside of you. And the more you yield to that new creation, 
the more you'll display that life on the outside where others can see. But it really doesn't matter where they can see or think you're new or not. You're, you're new if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You are totally new. And you're as ready for heaven as you'll ever be. Amen? The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, and it's one of his favorite sayings, he said, Do you not know? He says, You should know this by now, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ. See, this is not a water baptism only. You're actually being baptized into Christ. He says, as many as were baptized into Christ, look, were baptized into what? His death. Therefore, we were buried, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk, here it is, in the newness of life. See, you got to identify with baptism. See, Jesus Christ dying on the cross is good news, but it's not good enough. Because if all we have is a dead Jesus, that saves no one. Because you're not saved because Jesus died. If he simply died on the cross and we buried him and that was the end of the story, then that is not the gospel. It is part of the gospel, but it is not the full gospel. So never leave Jesus on the cross and never leave Jesus in the tomb. Because the gospel is not the gospel until resurrection morning. That when Jesus comes from the grave, that's when the power of the newness of life. Just like Jesus' dying is typified in the blood being applied in Egypt, that got them out of Egypt, but it didn't deal with the Pharaoh coming after them. What deals with that Pharaoh because, see, he followed them down into the Red Sea. He followed and pursued them into the water. But the difference between him and them is he didn't come out. That enemy that they saw today, Moses said, take a good look at him. Because you will see him no more forever. Pharaoh, his soldiers, his army. And I've heard the ridiculous things, and you probably have too if you've been in the church a long time. And some, you know, great uh, theologian said, well, you know, the water was not, uh, you know, but ankle deep. Well, it's the greatest miracle I ever heard how God drowned the whole army in ankle-deep water, horses and all. <clears throat> Still a miracle. Anyway, you want to do it. You know how you see the movies of Charlton Heston and the children of Israel crossing, and in the movie they portray it, and it's about like where those speakers are. You see a wall of water, and where these speakers are, there's a wall of water, and here they go across, and that is such a joke. It's always God does it so much bigger than we could ever even imagine. See, there were two to three million, nobody knows exactly, but at least two million, some say three million Hebrew slaves that were led across. And the Bible says they crossed the Red Sea in one night. That means if they crossed the sea in one night in around eight hours, that means they had to walk 5,000 abreast. That means that it was miles of dry land walking across the Red Sea in victory to the other side, to the thing that God had promised them. When Jesus Christ was being baptized by John in the river Jordan, he was typifying the resurrection and what would happen in the, in the salvation of the Lord that he would accomplish for us. Remember the Bible says that when Jesus came out of the water, it says it like this, immediately the heavens were opened. Three things happened. Number one, the heavens were opened over him. There was an open heaven over him. 
The second thing that happened was the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form as a dove. And it says, I love this part, and it remained on him. And the third thing that happened was that God's voice was heard from heaven. And God affirmed him and says, this is. In other words, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Three things. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that was Jesus. No, Jesus was demonstrating the newness of life. When you get born again, those three things happen to you. The first thing that happens to you is the heavens that have been closed seemingly, not because God didn't want you, but because you, didn't, you, you wasn't receiving the benefit of it. You have an open heaven over your life, over your marriage, over your vocation, over your job, over your, everything. You have an open heaven. Do you know church, Christians still gather in churches and pray for an open heaven? Only place the heavens are closed to Christians is twin years. Guess what? If you believe they closed, you'll act like they closed and you'll pray like they're closed. You know, there was a prophet in the old covenant named Isaiah in Isaiah 64 and 1 before the new covenant came and he cried out one time in verse 1, Oh God, rend the heavens and come down. He was praying for an open heaven that God would literally rip the heavens open. And that was an appropriate prayer for an Old Testament person. But don't go get Isaiah's prayer and start praying it for today because that's ignorance. Hello, the heavens are already open. The heavens are never closed over the life of a believer. You don't have to say, well, I feel like the heavens are brass and the earth, whatever all them sayings are. Just forget that. It's all lies. The heavens are open over you. The second thing that happens is you have the Holy Spirit now. God gave you the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you something. I don't care what anybody tells you. He doesn't come and go. He didn't come and go. He didn't leave your life. He promised you that when he entered into you, he would never leave you, never forsake you. He would never leave you. He, even when I do sin, he doesn't leave. No, I don't care what. Oh, you're out of fellowship with the Lord. They, they didn't get that out of the Bible. They got that out of religion. God will never, never, ever leave you. And he will never, never, ever forsake you. The third thing is, this is what God says. You are my beloved son. <clears throat> Not just loved, but be loved. Some of you need to act like you be loved. Somebody needs to notify your face that you be loved. You are loved, beloved. You are the beloved of the Lord. Now I know you think you got to earn his love, but that too is a lie. For the Bible says, while you were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for you by dying on the cross. Now, he died whether you're going to accept it or not. He already did it for you. And if you could receive this, it would change your life. Because at the point of Jesus' baptism, let me tell you what he was, a blue-collar carpenter, blue-collar worker. He's never done anything. He's not healed anybody. He hadn't done any of that stuff. And I know you hear fairy tales in churches like Jesus is a little baby and he's walking on the water in the bathtub and his mama's saying, stop walking on the water, i got to bathe you and all that stuff. And it makes good jokes, really bad jokes, because it's just heresy. It's not true. Do you understand that when Jesus, before <clears throat> at his baptism at 30, he couldn't do any miracles? If that shocks you, you need to read the Bible more. He couldn't heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils. He couldn't do any of that. Now, he knew who he was at 12, but he had not yet been empowered 
by the Holy Spirit to do the works that God wanted him to do. And if you think, well, I'm wrong on that, then I would ask you, number one, it says that when Jesus was 12, they found him in the temple, his mother. You know, you know the Home Alone movie? This is where they got the script for that. Great movie. But Jesus got left home alone. And the caravan left. And they all, Joseph and Mary, assumed that he was riding with some kinfolk. He was on the other camel. But he wasn't. And so two days, you know, later, they stop at the oasis or whatever, and they look for Jesus, and he's nowhere to be found. There's nothing more frightening to a parent to realize you have lost your kid. I remember one time when my daughter was just, uh, how old was she? <laughs> Two or three years old. Because every Sunday she rode home with my parents after church, like my grandbabies do with me now. But... Uh, I don't know what happened, but she didn't ride with Papa that Sunday. And after the church was over, we got to my dad and mom's, which was kind of normal for us to all go there and eat lunch. Everybody was looking around. I'm like, where's, where's Kristen? And by the time the phone rang, and it was our pastor who lived next door to the church at a parsonage, he said, are y'all missing anyone? <laughs> he said, I have Kristen here with me. So it was so embarrassing, like we were bad parents. I'm sure Joseph and Mary kind of felt the same way. So they travel back. They go to the temple. You know one thing about Joseph? He is never in the Bible recorded as saying one word. Never does he even utter one syllable that we have recorded in the Bible. I'm sure he talked. They go and find Jesus in the temple asking questions, scribes and lawyers, Pharisees. And when Mary gets there, she does the talking. Come on, ladies. And she literally says, look at your father. You know how those Jewish women, you know I love them. Look at your father. Look what you did to your dad. Look at your father. You look, look, look. That's how I imagine it anyway. I've known some sweet Jewish women. She's like, look what you did. And I can see Joseph, you know, he's kind of like, because he's been getting an earful all the way back, you know, like. And, and, and so they say to Jesus, look what you've done. I mean, you know, they're, they're really rebuking him. And, the Bible, and Jesus said this, he says, uh, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Now, his father was a carpenter, and he did have his own business, but Jesus wasn't talking about the carpenter business. He was talking about his father's business. He's literally saying, if anybody should know what I'm up to, I mean, didn't like both of you guys have a personal visit by an angel named Gabriel? I mean, like, Dad, wasn't you going to divorce Mom? before y'all were legally married because you thought she stepped out on you and had sex with another man because she's pregnant, but she told you don't worry about it because I'm pregnant by God, and you go like, right, so I'm going to divorce you. And wasn't you like packing up to leave, and then that same angel that mom said talked to her and told her she was pregnant with the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, with Jesus who would save the world from sin, and you were going to leave mom and divorce her privately. And the only reason you were going to divorce her privately, because if you divorced her publicly, then they would take her out to the city dump and stone her to death, because adultery was a death penalty in that day. And you loved her, and you didn't want her killed, but you didn't believe a word she said. Is it all right to have the real Bible here today? And yet then the angel came and told Gabriel, don't divorce her and put her away because she's telling you the truth. I always can't wait till I get to heaven to check out that DVD of Joseph going back to that other end of the house or whatever and saying, <clears throat> honey, <laughs> uh, Mary, 
My bad, baby girl. I'm sorry. I should have believed what you said. I, I should have believed you. Uh, Gabe was just talking to me back there. And um, I will always believe everything you say, no matter how weird it sounds from here on out. Maybe that's why we don't ever have Joseph saying another word, you know, and recorded in the Bible, you know. But Jesus, it says that when they rebuked him, he said, I got to be at my father's business. And, and this is what it says. They understood not the things that he spoke. They didn't understand him. You know, there's times that the people that are closest to you don't understand you. Can I just say there's times I don't even understand my own self. And then the next verse says this. Jesus made, made himself subject to them. In other words, he submitted to them. The word subject is the Greek word hupotasso. Hupo means come under. Tasso means authority. Jesus placed himself under their authority even though they didn't understand him. There's some people today won't place themselves under authority that they even perceive and thinks that understands them. And then it says the result of him doing that, listen, it says that Jesus made himself subject unto them and went down to Nazareth with them. And this is what it says, listen, and, he, and Jesus grew in statue and in favor with God and man. It says he grew in wisdom and statue and favor. If Jesus came here as God and going to use all the power that God has, how can you get smarter if you're God? How can you grow in wisdom? There is a proof verse that Jesus, when he came to earth, did not know everything. I know you sat in churches where they told you he did, but he didn't. Because if Jesus knew everything, then stop calling yourself a Christian, which means I'm like him, because you don't have a prayer to be like him. Because I've met a few that thinks they know everything, but they don't. None of us do. But Jesus identified with us, and he, and he needed the same Holy Spirit. So sometime between 12 and 30 years of age, we don't know exactly what happened. The Bible's silent on it. It's just sheer speculation. But we do know this. Joseph died. His dad died. And if Jesus could have done any miracle, don't you believe he'd have done that one? But what he did that day was buried his dad. Watched his mother crying, his brothers and sisters. Half-brothers and sisters, but they're still brothers and sisters. And they bury his dad. We don't know if he got killed at the carpenter shop, died of some slow, debilitating disease. We don't know. But we know he died. And then Jesus, in the scriptures, changes from being called the carpenter's son to the carpenter. Now he's in charge of the business because dad's gone. Jesus knows what it's like to walk away from a grave and bury a loved one. He knows the pain of that. He feels that. He's been there. He can identify with everything you've ever gone through. And Jesus Christ now is entered into that Jordan River. And again, he's identifying with us. He's showing us that if you want to live this life under an open heaven with the Holy Spirit in you and remaining on you, and he will never leave you once he's made his entry, no matter what you do. And then God will always feel this way about you that he felt about Jesus. God will tell you, and God does tell you this, you are my beloved son or daughter. I love you. I loved you before you ever knew me. I always loved you. Amazing thing about these babies being born, all three of my children. I love my children. And man, I love my grandchildren. And every one of them, I love them before they got here, before I ever saw them. I loved them. When they hit the ground, so to speak, when they made entry into the earth, I loved them. 
when my granddaughter, the first grandbaby I had, when Lakeland was born, I was in the room when she was born. And I heard that little cry, and it filled my eyes with tears. I loved her. Couldn't wait to hold her. Poppy's girl. Same way with all of my grandbabies. Love them. Before you ever even knew God, he loved you. He's loved you before the foundation of the world. You don't have to earn his love. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to unearn it because you didn't earn it in the beginning. God loves you not because he tries. God loves you because he is love. God don't love you because you're good. God loves you because he's good. That's the big difference. Come on, give him praise for that. God is love. He said, you are my beloved son. And then this, this one really bothers people. In whom I'm well pleased. Now, see, I might could even convince some of you this morning that God loves you. Some of you really doubt that. But this one really goes down like the rat sandwich. You know what I'm saying? Wait now. God can't be pleased with me all the time. He's always pleased. I can't tell you, over 30 years of preaching, over 27 years of pastoring, I've had so many people come into my office and say, Brother Dale, I'm just trying to please the Lord. Or they're crying tears. I just want to please God, Brother Dale. I just want to please the Lord. See, the only reason you're crying like that is because you've believed a lie. You believe God's pleased or unpleased with you based on your performance, what you do or don't do. And that, my friend, is a lie. The Bible says this in Hebrews 11 and 6, Without faith it's impossible to please the Lord. But he that cometh to God, now if you're going to come to him, he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Not, not he was, not he will be, but he is a rewarder. Of them that diligently seek him. Okay, without faith. Now see, some of you think you bounce in and out of faith. Like the day you feel like you got faith tomorrow, not so much. <laughs> God's pleased with me today because I, you know, dressed up, came to church, read my Bible. No, he's not pleased with me. See, I know to some of you this day, to some in the world, this is about Easter bunnies and colored eggs. To others, it's about flashy suits freely dresses. But to us at Grace Point, it's about resurrection. And it's about our life. And see, it doesn't matter if you come here in a nice suit or if you're wearing blue jeans and pajama bottoms. We don't care. We, what we do care about is that you know the truth. That you have a heavenly father that loves you and always has loved you. And secondly, he's pleased with you. When the people do that, and they still do it, not as often <laughs> as they used to, but when someone says to me, Brother, I just want to please the Lord, I say, let me ask you a question. Is God pleased with Jesus? And they go, yes, of course. I say, well, he's pleased with you. Are you a believer? Yes. Where did God place you as a believer? In Christ. Well, if you're in Christ, God's pleased with you. How can he be unpleased? See, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, listen to me. At this point, remember, Jesus has not done one miracle, hadn't healed anybody, hadn't preached any sermons, he hadn't done anything religious. And yet, without doing anything like that, no ministry yet, no public ministry, none. God says, before you've done anything religious-wise, praiseworthy, I want you to know this before you start your ministry. I want you to know that you're my son. And I want you to never forget that I love you. I want you to know that I'm pleased with you. That's what God wanted him to start out his ministry. That way, when he went into the wilderness to be tempted and tested of the devil, after that great vocal affirmation from his father, 
The first thing that Satan's did to him. What's the first thing of those three temptations of Christ? What is the commonality of all three of those words of Satan? He starts out with this. If you are the Son of God. That's the only common factor. If you are the Son of God. What did God just say publicly out loud? You are my Son. The devil, this is how he always attacks. He still does today. He tries to make you doubt that God loves you. And he tries to make you doubt that you're a true son or daughter, that you're really a Christian. And he points out where you are, what you've done. So he's saying to Jesus, if God's such a great God, what are you out here in this wilderness for? Why are you out here without food and fasting? And you're out here with the animals. And I mean, where's God, man? I thought he's supposed to. Why don't you get laid off from your job? Why don't you go through a divorce? I, 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 why did this happen in your marriage? I, I, thought, I thought you were a Christian. What, what, what's going on? I thought God was good. Look at this ain't good. Look at where you are. Look at the house you live in. Look at there, you can't even pay your bills. What are you doing? If you are the Son of God, He'll always challenge that. You got to know that what happens is when you get born again, you are son and daughter. And when Satan comes and tries to make you question that, you just got to do what Jesus said. You got to tell him what the Bible says. And the reason you tell him what the Bible says is because you believe it, it is written. That's the common factor that Jesus answered every question. It is written. It is written. And he would remind him what God has said over him. But you know what? I went decades and I missed something in that little phraseology of Satan. Because Satan said, if you are the son of God. And, it, and it, it eluded me for years, decades actually. And one day, reading the Bible, as dull as I am and hard-headed, I saw it. Satan, with intentionality, left out one word. Because God didn't say, you're my son. God said, you are my beloved son. And so why didn't Satan, if he's going to repeat what God said, why didn't Satan say to Jesus, if you, you, know, if you are the beloved son of God, command these stones to be made bread. If you are the beloved. But he left out the word beloved. Because he wants you to leave it out of your revelation of your relationship with God. Because, see, the only person that is, is susceptible to the attacks of the enemy is the person who don't truly believe that God loves them. But if you know that you're the beloved son, not just a son or daughter of the Most High, but if you know that I'm the beloved son and that God's pleased with me. See, where it says without faith... It is impossible to please God. What kind of faith are we talking about? You straining harder, standing on your spiritual tippy toes? No, listen, the word without there in the Greek, without faith, the word without means outside of. Literally what the word means. So imagine this, draw a circle, and you're either in the circle or you're out of the circle. But you can't be in the circle and out of the circle at the same time. Without means, how many knows that you're within the sanctuary at Grace Point Church right now? And you're not on the outside. You're not without. But you can't be without and within at the same time. You have to be one of the two places. And when you got born again, you put faith in Jesus. That made you within. And without faith, you can't please God. It's not talking about you try harder and get muster up a bunch of faith and then God's pleased. No, no. There's only one faith, and that's faith in Jesus Christ that died on the cross, buried, and was resurrected. And when your faith is in him, you're within that faith, and God's pleased with you. That's what the verse is saying. And then God wants you to know because he is pleased with you, then when you come to God, know that he's a rewarder. 
of, and, and he is a rewarder. He, he won't will be or was. He is a rewarder of them that just diligently seek him with a sincere heart and talk to him and, and live their life out of that revelation of who he is. That's what you have over your life. That's what I have over my life. You have an open heaven. You have a father who has given you the Holy Spirit and he'll never take it from you. Now, you know, remember David in Psalm 51, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then we got his repentant prayer in the 51st Psalm and David says stuff like this, Oh God, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Remember? Very appropriate for old covenant believers because Jesus, the new covenant has not come into force yet. So the old covenant, they didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. The Holy Spirit would come upon them for purpose and service, but he didn't indwell them. That's why Jesus told them before he went to the cross, he said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the comforter won't come. But when he does come, if I go away, he will come. And when he comes, he will not only be with you, but he shall be in you. And he'll never leave you. So you always have the Holy Spirit. And you always have an open heaven. And you always have the love of the Father. And you always have, he's pleased with you. I remember when I wrote something on our website that, you know, about this God's pleased with us. Oh, Christians will eat that up. I told them, imagine if you could walk around town and you wore a big T-shirt that you had printed and says, I please God. Nobody would have a problem with that but religious Christians. They would go, how dare you say you please God? That's arrogancy. No, that's Bible. But we're so far away from the Bible and so steeped in religion. Do you understand that our salvation is hinged upon the resurrection. The whole 10th chapter of Romans talks about being born again. And it says this, that, that our salvation, it says if we believe, if we, if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, listen, that God raised Jesus from the dead, then what does it say to the rest of it? Thou art saved. So the re you're saved by the resurrection. It, salvation comes because you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Why did he raise him from the dead? A lot of times I ask Christians, tell me about your salvation. And they always talk about the cross, and rightly so, but don't leave it there. They, I say, tell me about the cross then. Well, what happened at the cross? He, you know, he shed his blood. He, he paid for our redemption. He, he, he purchased our forgiveness. All of those things would be true. But your salvation is much more than a Jesus on the cross bleeding and dying. Your salvation is about an empty tomb. Your salvation is about a resurrection that came, took place when Jesus Christ overcame death, hell, and the grave. And he gave you the Holy Spirit who empowers you to live in the newness of life. Do you receive the word of God this morning? Give the Lord praise if you do. Amen. I want our ushers to come and Elders, to come and uh, prepare to serve you this morning. What an awesome, awesome privilege we have to receive communion this morning. Hey, man, if you're visiting with us today, we, we, we're honored to have you. We'd love to have you to come back again. As we take communion, we pray you would participate. We want you to. But I'd ask you to do this. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's talking about the communion, he says, he does say, let a man examine himself. And he does tell us, do not partake of it in an unworthy manner. 
I talked about this a little bit last Sunday. I remember when my wife and I now, we were dating. I went to a Baptist church with her because I had to if I was going to get to date her. And I remember in that service, I was raised terrified of communion. thought God would kill you if you wasn't perfect. And I remember in that little Baptist church, they gave communion. I was the only person in there that didn't receive it because I thought it was about me. I wasn't doing it in remembrance of him. I was doing it in remembrance of me and my sins and my problems. I encourage you today, now if you walk up here, the only way you can partake of this in an unworthy manner is come up here without a lamb. Do you know what I mean by that? Stand there in your own righteousness, your own efforts, your own performance. Please don't do that. And if you're here right now and you've not been born again, if you've not accepted and put your faith in Jesus, man, right now is a great time to do that. Just receive him. Believe him. Believe what I preach to you today. That's as good as it gets, man. God loves you. He's paid the price for your sin. All he wants you to do is believe it and receive it. Amen. And so let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that you took my sin, my place. And Lord, not only did you die for me, but you died as me. You died as Dale. Dale was buried. And Dale rose with you on the third day. Let me live out of that revelation of that newness of life and walk by the power that will cause the enemies that try to pursue us that we see today we shall never again see no more forever. Just like the children of Israel, it ended with Pharaoh pursuing them. Today, the life of bondage to sin ends for all that will put their faith in you, Jesus. So I pray as we remember what you did on the cross, we remember your death, your bloodshed, your broken body that was broken for us. We thank you. Thank you for the resurrection. Without death, there can be no resurrection. So you died, but it didn't end there. You rose again. Thank you for the power to live this life, empowered not by our performance, but empowered by grace, empowered by your spirit. Today we pray over this communion and every person here. We encourage them to examine themselves to see if they see Jesus on the inside of them. If they don't see Jesus, then let them receive you now. Let them receive the lamb. Let them receive the sacrifice. Let them receive Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.